Welcome to Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis, your host. As a writer, speaker, and former legislator, we discuss limiting government, fiscal responsibility, and fair taxation. I'm a mother of seven and a wife of one for over three decades, so I bring you my personal experience. And now it's time for Homefront with Cynthia Davis. Happy Tuesday night. It is another fun Tuesday night and an opportunity to learn and become educated. I'd like to thank all of you for joining me this evening. We have another exciting program with our favorite guest, Bill Federer. And Bill, tell us, what are you doing in Washington, D.C.? Well, thanks for having me on, Cynthia. Um, I spoke at a breakfast in the Capitol on Monday uh, for a group that... uh, I've spoken for a couple different times, and um, and uh, I'm speaking at a luncheon tomorrow where a lot of conservative leaders meet every week, and then doing a radio interview with uh, Tony Perkins of the Family Research Center. You know what? I've been there and done that. I, I've gone to that morning conservative Wednesday morning group in Washington, D.C. before, and it is a great opportunity to be there because... You never know what is going to make a difference. So um, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. So um, you're going to be back in Missouri in a little bit, and then we'll get to change change the world up here. A lot of things are happening in Missouri. I'm keeping track of that blue way, beltway that the land grabbed by the federal government, and that's definitely something that I am not in favor of. Um, and I think that uh, we're moving in the direction that the government controlling uh, more and more of our lives. And anyone that is able to uh, connect some dots can see where this is headed. And um, uh, Woodrow Wilson gave an interesting quote. He said, the history of liberty is the history of limitation on government power, not the increase of it. He said, when we resist the concentration of power, we are resisting the powers of death. Because concentration of power always comes uh, with the destruction of human liberties. And uh, I love the way Ronald Reagan said it. Uh, the government that is big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. And um, I've uh, been able to study and write on uh, this topic uh, one of the books that I wrote is called Change to Chains, uh, a little play on words, but it's Change to Chains, C-H-A-I-N-S, to kind of go on your arms and legs and wrists and ankles. But um, it's an overview of 6,000 years of a quest for global power. And um, I don't know if you want me to... To start talking about that. Well, I want to talk to you about the mess we're in today. I think, you know, you and I were both born around the same time, and so we're the ones, our generation is looking at our world, and we're trying to piece together. I, I think the most frustrating part for us is we're viewing decline, and we're like, wait a minute, it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to get better every year. We were taught that, and now we're watching our country dis, dis, really disassemble itself, and uh, with a lot of uh, – we're being pushed off the cliff, of course, by some of those people in Washington, D.C., a little faster than we otherwise would have, but – it behooves all of us to try and piece together what happened and really what can we do to stop the course of history because at this rate it looks like we are headed for change. So tell us what you interpret as the correct response for what we're supposed to be looking at. How do we interpret history and where are we headed now? Well, thanks, um, Cynthia. And uh, one of the things I do is, researched every civilization that has ever existed on planet Earth. And it took about a year, and I went back to the beginning.
beginning of writing. Uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphics and Sumerian cuneiform were invented around 3000 B.C. And so that's the beginning of human writing and record keeping. And uh, so from 3000 B.C. to today is uh, about 5,000 years. Uh, and there's uh, good evidence that the, the world existed before that for maybe a thousand years, so we're rounded out to 6,000. But um, I tell people 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. And just about everyone has met someone who's lived 100 years or close to it, maybe a grandma. We're talking 60 grandmas, right? One dies, another is born. You do that 60 times, and you are all the way back to the beginning of all recorded human history. 60 grandmas, that's it. Now, the most uh, common form of government in all of recorded human history is what? What? Well, it's dictatorship, monarchy, <laughs> uh, power concentrates into the hands of one person. Now, we call this one person by different names, pharaohs, Caesars, Kaisers, Sultans, Tsars, but the function remains the same. One person is in control and has ultimate life and death power over everyone. And uh, I believe it goes back to the fall in the garden and sin came into the human DNA and Cain kills Abel and one king takes a kingdom from another king. And so if you put some babies in a crib, one of them will wind up taking the rattle from the others. And if you put some kids on a playground, one of them will wind up being the bully hogging the ball. And you drop some people in the woods, one of them's the Indian chief and drop them in an inner city, one of them is the gang leader. So it's sort of the Lord of the Rings Everyone wants that ring of power. Now, if you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. Right? So that's the norm. So for most of world history, if equality was how close to the orbit can you get to the king. Uh, we're moving in that direction where if you're friends with the president, you get a health care waiver. Uh, Obamacare waiver. If you're not a friend of the president, you get your Gibson Guitar Factory rated. And if you're an enemy of the president, you get targeted by the IRS. So we're sort of moving back in that direction. Uh, and this is the norm. This is like gravity. This is like Newton's law of gravity where the lesser mass is attracted to the greater mass. You know, people are attracted to people with power. And so once they get power, then they, more people are attracted and they get more powerful and more people are attracted to them and until it turns into this juggernaut. And um, and so we see throughout world history, uh, we there's, again, only 6,000 years of it. Um, you know, four to 3,000, there's no uh, not a whole lot of records. And there's, biblically, that would have been the time before the flood, uh, around 3,000 is the first civilizations that have ever existed on the planet appear in the Mesopotamian Valley which is Mesopotamia means between the rivers, and the rivers were the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so today that's Iraq, but um, back then it was called Babylon. And, uh, and lo and behold, the very first cities and records appear in that valley. It's sort of interesting. The Bible says that that is the same place where civilization began around the same time period, and they talk about, uh, the Bible talks about the Tower of, of Babel and Nimrod and wanting to concentrate power and defiantly, you know, shake his fist at God. And God saw this concentrated power and decided to confuse the languages and scatter the people around the earth. And so we, again, see this concentrated power is in the hands of the kings. And that separated power puts the power in the hands of the people. And, uh, but sort of like the movie, uh, you know, The Terminator, where that, uh, robot assassin comes from the future made out of metal and then, um, he's destroyed, but then the little metal pieces melt and sort of roll back together and then the Terminator comes out of this metal pool and he starts chasing him again. <laughs> and so it's this idea that, um, power wants to concentrate. It's sort of subconscious, and 
and um, and that's the norm. What's rare in history is people getting a chance to experiment and try to rule themselves without a king. And uh, the first well-recorded instance of an entire nation being ruled without a king was who? It was Israel. Remember uh, about 1300 B.C. when Israel comes out of Egypt where the Pharaoh controlled everything and they go into the promised land. And uh, for 200 years, the Israelites do not have a king. They are all equal before the law. And the law says there's no respect of persons in judgment. Everybody's to be treated the same. There's no favorites. And the law says everyone's made in the image of the Creator. And so uh, this is the beginning of the very concept of equality on planet Earth. The fact that you are equal, not because, you know, you're more friends with the king. You know, you're equal because you're made in the image of the Creator. And the Creator gave this law that says there's no respect of persons in judgment. This is the beginning of the concept of the individual that you have a worth independent of your contributing to the king and his state. Um, anyway, Israel is also the first instance of private land ownership. Remember all those boring chapters where they draw lots and have surveys and this tribe gets from the river to the sea and this family gets this mountain and Caleb's daughter gets off the donkey and asks her dad for the spring on the other side of the field and he gives it to her, and, and my mom's name is Tirza. And the first mention of Tirza in the Bible is she was the daughter of Zelophehad. And Zelophehad had no sons. And when they're dividing up land, these girls go to Moses and say, don't we get land too? Is our dad's name going to be forgotten? And Moses says, okay, you get land, just marry someone within your tribe. But this was unheard of. Individual women getting land where in Egypt, the Pharaoh controlled all the land. In Mesopotamia, the kings did. In China, there were 18 major dynasties over 5,000 years, and the emperor decided what happened to the land. Well, in Israel, the people had the land, and it was permanently attached to their families so that it would, every 50 years, go back, and so this would prevent a king from accumulating the land and becoming powerful. And um, anyway... Uh, is this interesting, Cynthia? No, it's amazing. I, I mean, we've got already, let me just say, um, there, the, the people in our generation have been looking at the country and saying, what's up? Because we took so much for granted. And, and we assumed that that's just the way it always is. I remember even going back to my days on the city council, how I felt that if we ever did anything outside the line that the good, moral, decent people in our community would be in such a, an uproar that there was a natural tension causing people to behave in a moral and decent manner. And as we've watched things that have been outrageous going on, especially in the last few years, it, you know, it shocked us. How, I mean, how, you know, the direction of our country is is turning very iron-fisted, and and it shocks us, I think, because we've always been taught you're supposed to be nice, everybody is going to be charitable, and, you know, it, it was the kind of country where if you lost your wallet, you would expect it to be returned to you. Well, that may not happen anymore. We may be looking at a higher level of brutality, not only from our fellow man, but from now the question of what is the government going to do to us. So I, I'd love your perspective because it behooves all of us to observe what is going on. I want to know if you can comment on the history of the United Nations and how we got to a point where our, you know, all, all you and I have ever known and, and I know how old you are because it's on our Wikipedia articles. <laughs> and you know how old I am, too. <laughs> and we're two years apart. And so when we were kids, we believed it's always going to be nice the way, the way it's always been. And, and I, I believe we were too, you know, when we were young, 
they had us, UNICEF was the good thing and they're helping poor people and we didn't realize what a monster was being created right under our nose. So can you tell us how did we get to a point where now America is giving away its sovereignty? Yeah, um, well, it's, uh, you know, throughout most of history, um, as I mentioned, uh, power gravitates into the hands of the king. And the, um, uh, oops, uh, <laughs> um, hold on one second here. No problem. I'm happy to hold on for you. And while we're holding on, I I want, mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, I think I, I accidentally um, somehow or another hit the Skype thing, and so I pulled up the the uh, program on Skype, and so I can hear you on my computer as well as on the phone. So let me uh, turn this off here. But um, uh, it's interesting that uh, when I would go through world history, that um, you would see uh, the, the kings and the pharaohs and the Caesars and the Kaisers and the sultans and the czars and as power concentrates, um, the uh, the value of human life is lessened into um, uh, serving the king. And uh, I found this interesting, that um, uh, all the ancient civilizations, the, the kings claimed to be semi-divine. Uh, you know, the Assyrian Babylonians, they were king priests that um, the Egyptian pharaohs claimed to be the son of the god Osiris. The um, Roman emperors claimed to be august, which means divine. And um, they would have their cult of Caesar and they'd pitch incense in front of the statue. And, of course, the Christians wouldn't and the Jews wouldn't and they got persecuted. But, the uh, you know, uh, the Chinese emperors claimed they had a mandate from heaven to be the emperor. And the... Uh, Indian rajas claimed to be semi-divine, you know, the Hindu uh, kings, and uh, Muhammad, you know, prophet of Allah. And uh, and then the medieval Europeans, uh, they called it the divine right of kings, where God chose me to be the king, so whatever my will is must be God's will, because he put me here, so I can pretty well do anything I want. And, um, uh, and then you uh, see that... Uh, uh, Christianity comes along and says, well, no, everybody has their own relationship with God, so we don't need a political intermediary. And so this sort of pulls the rug out from underneath of dictators. And so we see that uh, in our uh, American experiment. But uh, throughout history, the, the world empires keep getting bigger. So the first one was Acadia, which went from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic Ocean. And then you have the Assyrians. And then the Egyptians, for 2,000 years, they were pretty much the biggest empire on the planet. Then there was Alexander the Great, and he conquers the largest area in the world. And um, and then you have the you know the Julius Caesar, and then you have the the Indian uh, Chandra Gupta and his Mara Empire in India. And, uh, you know, you just work your way up Attila the Hun, and then. Gee, fast forward to the Ottoman Muslim emperors, you know, sultans and the huge areas they've controlled. And then you have um, uh, Genghis Khan, uh, and he conquered from Korea to Hungary and killed 30 million people. And then you have uh, the Catherine the Great of Russia, 12 time zones, all controlled by one person, Catherine the Great of Russia. And then you have um, the Spanish Empire. The sun never set on the Spanish Empire. They had, uh, you know, most of Europe because Charles V was the Holy Roman Emperor, and then all the Americas and the Philippines, and, you know, you go around the world, and then the British Empire. The largest empire that the planet has seen was the British Empire. 13 million square miles, a half a billion people, all ultimately controlled by one person, the king. You know, he did have a little bit of a limitations with the parliament, but, you know, by and large, it was his will. And um, anyway, uh, America comes along. And uh, we decide we want to go in the opposite direction of the king. And so we stretch the rubber band, and we take the power of a king, and we separated it into three branches, and we separated it federal to state level. And then we tie up this new federal Frankenstein with ten handcuffs. And, and in a sense, all our Constitution is is a bunch of hurdles 
to prevent power from snapping back into the hands of another dictator. Unfortunately, after every crisis, we see power snapping back. And so it was great that Lincoln ended slavery, but in the process, he had a whole lot of rights go from the states to the federal government. And, you know, he was withheld habeas corpus so you could arrest people and you could, you know, have a draft and all kinds of things. Um, and then there's Woodrow Wilson. Uh, it was, you know, he concentrates power with his uh, income tax and then FDR concentrates power with his New Deal programs and Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty and Nixon's war on drugs and Bush's war on terror and now the new president. And no matter what the crisis is, the answer is the same. Surrender your lives and money to the government, and it'll promise to take care of you. Just trust it. Well, unfortunately, if we learn from history, we'll see as power concentrates, it gets more corrupt. Lord Acton was a British statesman, and he said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I liken it to a spectrum of power. One side is total government, the other side is no government. The total government side, power concentrates into the hands of the king. The no government side is anarchy. <laughs> There's no government, right? America was able to get closest to the anarchy side of the spectrum because of a secret ingredient. And what? Judeo Christian morality. Mm-hmm. And we could get by without a strong government and still maintain order because the people were taught that there is a God that is looking over your shoulder all the time, and he wants you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so we could get by without a, a bunch of police and a bunch of people reading through your emails and all this kind of stuff because the people were taught these Judeo-Christian morals. But as you give up the morals, and there's more crises and killings and, and people killing in movie theaters and killing in schools, we say, government, do something. And the only thing the government knows how to do is pass more laws and concentrate more power and take more control. And as the power concentrates, it is more corrupt. And it's hard to picture the word corruption, but let's use the word favoritism. Now, imagine if you got to be the king and you decided you were going to be really, really fair. And then you have a sister who has a teenage son that gets drunk and hits somebody with a car, and this kid's facing the death penalty, and your sister comes begging to you and says, you're not going to let my little Johnny get killed. It wasn't his fault. These other kids got him to drink, and, and they were the ones taking him on, and blah, 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 blah. What are you tempted to say? Well, I'll let Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. You're sending the message that if you're my friend or family, you're going to get a little extra special treatment. So it's inevitable. As power corrupts, there will be favoritism. There will be corruption. The only way to get around it is to not have a king and not have power corrupt and keep power separated in the hands of the people. And how can you do that? The people need to have morality. They need to have virtue. And I'm working my way toward your U.N. question. Um but uh, one interesting story to sort of get toward that is Athens. After Israel's experiment failed uh, and they got King Saul, um, then there was Athens. They had a king named Draco, and he had the death penalty for just about everything, so his laws are called draconian, draconian laws. Well, they get rid of Draco and they get a new king named Solon, S-O-L-O-N, Solon. And he invents democracy. It was his idea. And he leaves town after he set it up, so the people have to do it. And so they all, every day, have to meet in the marketplace in Athens and talk politics. And if you did not keep up with politics in Athens, you were called an idiotus, an idiot. And so this goes on from about 600 B.C. to 300 B.C., and uh, it's sort of interesting, if there is a king and you have something you want to lobby, you have to get in to see the king. Well, you have to get through his staff. So they're the doorkeepers. So in China, the Chinese emperors had Mandarin eunuchs, these guys who kept the harems, but they were the doorkeeper to the king. And so 
People would have to bribe them with favors just to get in to see the emperor. But in Athens, there was no emperor. The people made the decisions in this democracy. Well, if you have something you want to push, how do you lobby all the people? Well, that's when the Greeks invented theater. We think theater is for entertainment. No, it's political. And they would have comedies and tragedies. And they would extol some points of view and ridicule others. And so you see that today, that there's some show, some sitcom, some movie, and there's a character that you fall in love with. They're cute. They're funny. They're, you know, going to save the world. And you find yourself um, watching, and then this character begins to make morally compromising decisions. Maybe they sleep around. Maybe they lie. They're deceitful. And you find, you know, you find yourself saying, well, I know James Bond's with women he's not married to, but he's about to save the world, so it's sort of okay. So you apologize for him, and then they usually make the buffoons in the movie, the people that hold to old traditional values. They're the backwards people. And if you watch these shows long enough, your views will be lobbied. And so in a country where the people make the decisions, uh, all the way back to the Greek theater, um, that theater, Hollywood, movies, is always political. Somebody owns the movie theater. Somebody's paying to put those shows on. Somebody's paying the scriptwriters. Somebody has an agenda in every single thing you watch. Anyway, what happened in Athens? Well, they had a guy named Plato, P-L-A-T-O, Plato. And he uh, lived around 380 B.C. And Plato said the city government in Athens would go through five stages. And the first stage he called rule of the capable. These are people that know how to run farms and businesses, and they know how to run city governments. They're just responsible people. They're followed by what Plato called lovers of fame. These are people that have no experience running anything. They just got famous. Maybe they were a Greek actor or a Greek Olympic athlete or a, a, a military hero. And they go in to politics with the best of intentions, but they don't have experience running anything. And they get in, and they can't resist the temptation, and they begin to vote themselves favors out of the city treasury, just a little bit here and there to pad their nest. And then, uh, so this turns into... Uh, the third stage, so we go from rule of the capable to rule of the famous to the third stage, a rule of insiders, a little click, an oligarchy. And these people pass laws that they don't have to abide by. They raise taxes on everybody else but not themselves. And over time, this oligarchy, this insider click, um, the people get upset at them. And they vote the bums out, and they set up a democracy. This is great. The people get to decide the fate of their city. But the people have no experience running a city government, and they have the same human tendency of selfishness. And there's the pot of city money sitting there, and the only example they had is these oligarchs who voted themselves favors, and so the people decide to vote themselves favors. And they raid the city treasury and spread the wealth around, and everybody gets money. This is great. Happy days. But then there's no money left. And then they say, well, gee, what do we do? I know the rich people. They've got money, and all we got to do is vote, and we can take the money from the rich people. So they vote, take the money from the, from the rich people. Then there's no rich left. Yet now they like this money, and there's not enough to go around, so they begin to bicker amongst themselves. And they have a tug-of-war, and they begin to fight, and it begins to turn into chaos and turn into anarchy. And then they begin to say, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And that's the fifth stage. Someone comes along, and they're all smiles, and they promise everything to everybody. And they're very eloquent speakers, and they're very convincing. And as people begin to believe them and yield up their money, their freedom, their taxes, this person begins to consolidate power and then use the power of the government against any opponents that might stick their head up. And finally, he stands in the chariot of state, holding the reins of power, and he turns into the tyrant. And so Plato said that's the five stages, rule of the capable, rule of the famous, uh, insider click and oligarchy, uh, democracy, but democracy without virtue ends in chaos, out of which a tyrant arises. And so if 
you want to be the tyrant and you are living in a democracy, you would want there to be a chaos and anarchy. You would want them to spend all the money in the treasury. You'd want them to go bankrupt so that the people would begin to say, gee, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And then you're there saying, yeah, here I am. And um, okay. anyway, but fast forward into the U.N., um, after World War II, uh, the decision was made, let's concentrate power and let's create this uh, you know, global organization uh, that will guarantee peace. Well, guess what? The organization is made up of people, and people have a sinful, selfish nature. And they're going to try to figure out how can we use this organization to advance our selfish goals. And I was actually there in San Francisco in the hotel. I think it was a Fairmont Hotel, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they have a room in the hotel with a plaque on the wall, and it says, this is the room that the United Nations Charter was written in. Yes, that's where the delegates came, and Alger Hiss was the delegate from the United States, and he was later convicted of being a communist spy. But nevertheless, the United Nations Charter was written. Um, it was Dwight Eisenhower that made the suggestion that they open with prayer, very similar to how the U.S. Congress opens with prayer. But they voted that down. They didn't want to do that. Anyway, so the United Nations was formed, and they uh, wanted to have it be so that they could end all wars, and they, uh, you know, recognized Israel shortly after being formed. But as time went on, Muslim countries began to join, and Muslim countries began to say, you know, we don't like this U.N. Declaration of Human Rights that says um, uh, you can switch religions and you can have freedom of speech. And so they banded themselves together into a 57 Muslim block of U.N. votes, and now they're very powerful, and they want to push Islamic Sharia law on the world. And so they've been pushing for anti-blasphemy laws to be passed, and Hillary Clinton has promised them that she's going to do this. And she met with them all in Istanbul, Turkey. And um, But uh, anyway, now we're seeing that this concentrated power, instead of it being used to guarantee human rights around the world, now we see it's been being used to implement <laughs> Sharia law around the world, which is the ultimate taking away of human rights. Right. And, um, uh, but, again, the concept that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, ben Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. So if you're, uh, you're going to have people have a lot of freedom, they need to have lots of virtue. As they give up their virtue and give in to their passions and lusts and there's crises, then there's a call for more laws and uh, power reconcentrates. It's sort of like a, a parent gives the teenager the car keys and says, you can come home whenever you want because I know you're going to do what's right because you have internal morals and law and virtue. But if you don't do what's right, and you drink and drive and hang around the wrong kids and get rowdy, pretty soon you'll be pulled over by the police and thrown in jail, and you will be controlled behind bars. So you are going to be controlled either voluntarily from the inside or forcibly from the outside. It's your choice to your pick. It's the same way with a nation. You're either going to be voluntarily controlled with internal morals, and the morals are powerless, unless there is a consequence, and it, um, the, the consequence of facing a God in the next life is the ultimate consequence, and because this God can watch you, uh, it's not just, oh, let's have ethical rules. People don't obey ethical rules, uh, but if they are convinced that they're going to stand before God, and he sees everything, then they're going to be nice to everybody, whether there's police around or not. And, um, and so America uh, was able to have the maximum freedom and liberty. Uh, but as we give up our morals, we're moving back in the direction of power concentrating. Um, uh, does this make sense? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, <clears throat> you said that the gentleman who was the U.S. delegate to the United Nations was a communist spy. 
Do you think it's possible that the premise behind the United Nations was with conflicting motivations that people, you know, we were told that this will prevent a World War III, that uh, we will have one body come together and then it will make everybody behave more civilly and will solve all the problems that are caused by a lack of communication just by coming together and talking about our troubles and, and finding peaceable solutions. So how far off task has the United Nations gone? Well, even... Dwight Eisenhower said the United Nations is two things to two groups of people. He says to the free world, it's a sounding board to come up with answers. He says to the communist world, it's a way to network and push their communist agenda. Um, but uh, we see FDR. He is the one who coined the name United Nations. FDR was the Democrat president who was in for 12 years. He got elected four times. They had to pass the 22nd Amendment after him to limit a president to two terms. He's the one who put Hugo Black on the Supreme Court, who took religion out of state's jurisdiction and put it under the federal so that the federal government could morph it into this anti-Christian stuff that we got going on today. And um, the U.S. Communist Party ran a candidate for, for president every year uh, for like 20 or 30 years before FDR. The Communist Party of the USA would run up a candidate, and they were pushing for total communism and socialism. They were backed by the unions. But when FDR got elected, the Communist Party decided that they no longer needed to run a candidate. They would just back FDR. And um, FDR then gets into an alliance with the Soviet Union during World War II, and so these communists are like, gee, FDR is sort of our guy. And lo and behold, a bunch of them got into his administration. His first vice president was um, uh, Wallace, um, and uh, uh, he was a total socialist. He wanted the government to take over all the farms in America. And um, anyway, so uh, FDR has uh, Alger Hiss. Uh, help, uh, matter of fact, Alger Hiss was there at, at the Yalta conference there when FDR met with Stalin and Churchill. And FDR got, they said he got titchy from drinking a lot. And that's where he gave away half of Europe to the communists and condemned those people to 70 years of communism. And then FDR is on his way back from Yalta. And he meets on the USS Quincy with the king of Saudi Arabia. And the king of Saudi Arabia talks him into not recognizing the Jews uh, uh, in their homeland. FDR gets back, writes a letter to the Saudi king saying, okay, I won't recognize Israel. And then a week later, FDR is dead and Truman takes over. And he's from Missouri. And one of the first things, Israel. And... Uh, but as time goes on, uh, we see, uh, uh, you know, but the things Alger Hiss did was to make sure that the part of the UN that does any military uh, efforts is called the UN Security Council. And during the Korean War um, uh, and then the Vietnam War, we, we were frustrated as to why America wasn't winning. Lo and behold, Alger Hiss had written in the fine print that the UN Security Council needed to have a Soviet on the council. So our, our guys would go in there and plan how to defeat the communists, and they would go out of the room and make a phone call and tell them exactly what was going to happen. And we were totally naive to think that this wouldn't happen and lots of young men died uh, because of all these, you know, rules of engagement and so forth that were put on. But that's why we never officially won the Korean War. It's called an armistice, which means it's a ceasefire. And, um, and the, you know, in Vietnam, we won it on the field, but, you know, the politicians gave it away in the, in the, the back room. And um, anyway. Well, I appreciate uh, you putting it. Power corrupts. So today we're seeing all these crises. 
And the answer is surrender more of our rights to the UN, surrender more, you know, I mean, the president's pushing for a UN bill, uh, a UN treaty to, uh, outlaw our guns. And, uh, the idea is, well, if, the, if it's a UN treaty, the treaty is a superior to the, the national laws and the state laws. And so this is a way for the president to get around having to go through the amendment process. And so it's like, hey, I can rule uh, with concentrated power just by pushing through treaties. Um, and uh, but again, uh, it's do you, who do you trust more, uh, the, the many or the few? Um, I use the illustration: if you were accused of a crime and your fate was going to be determined in court for the rest of your life. And you had the choice of going before one politically appointed judge who was very efficient, or would you rather go before a jury of 12 of your peers? Now, it may take a long time, it may take a week, it may be a little bit confusing, you know, a little disorganized with a trial, but this is your life we're talking about here. Which one would you rather go before? Well, that's what our founders decided. They said, we have done the king route. We've done the, the politically appointed judge route, where one of the issues that led up to the Boston Tea Party was the king decided that the judges in Massachusetts would be paid directly by the king and not by the citizens of Massachusetts. That was like a big deal to these people. They're, you know, and they said, wait a second, whoever pays them, that's who they're going to be loyal to. And... uh so our founders in America, they decided we don't like this one very efficient politically appointed judge thing. We would rather take our chances with the people. And so they set up a form of government where the people made the decisions and that the church's job in all this was to keep the people educated to morality. And as long as the churches were doing their job and teaching people the law of God and that there is a God and he, and he has a right and a wrong, and um, then you could be pretty assured that when you have your trial and the jury's in there, that the jury's going to do what's right. And, uh, and that the people elect people and the, the you know, the, the populace has morals, they're going to elect people that have morals. But the churches have been laying down on their job and letting the, um, the, the secularists take over the schools and, and the media and the Hollywood. And, um, and so now we have a population that has, uh, diminishing, uh, values and uh, pushing gay marriage and abortion and all this other stuff. And and so now we're seeing more crises and more killings, and the people are saying, government, step in to restore order. And the government says, okay, we're going to have to spy on everybody. <laughs> we're going to have to read everybody's emails and track you by your phone and uh, know everything about you. And um, and then we, uh, you know, we say, well, gee, uh, we're, we're getting all upset that the government is controlling everything. Well, we decided that, if, if we're not going to exercise morality and be virtuous, then power will, the rubber band will snap back. I hate it when the rubber band snaps back. <laughs> but here, here's the question. I, you know, we've, we're looking at this United Nations Agenda 21, and we've seen uh, most recently the problems created over this land grab with the White water, and it's not white water rafting, it's the White River Blue Way project where there's a proposal and it was passed by not even the directly from the president, it was administrative power granted to say we're not going to let anybody have a anything within 180 feet of a body of water. And it affects 60 counties in Missouri and Arkansas. And it is really a taking of our land because when they remove the use and your ability to use your land for your agricultural purposes and they're setting up 
75% of the farms are going to have some kind of conservation plan foisted on them as if they don't know how to manage themselves. And, And all of this will be very expensive and could have the effect of ruining farming, which is a huge industry in Missouri and in in that Blue Way area. So my question is, how did we get to a point where the United Nations, through its own conservation, they call it conservation, but really it's a way of making the world look as they want it to look. How did we get that far off, off the path? And has any country ever turned the tide back the other way? Um, well, uh, Stalin controlled Russia through fear and food. In other words, he always kept people in fear that the government was spying on them, and so they wouldn't try to plot to overthrow him because they say, gee, our phone calls are being monitored, and some neighbor could snitch on you, and then you'd be arrested in the middle of the night. So he always kept people in fear of the government. And two, he always kept a food shortage. And so the people would spend their entire day thinking about how am I going to get food to feed my family at night. And so they couldn't be preoccupied in how to uh, overthrow Stalin. And so if you can control people's access to their farmland and their water, uh, you control their lives. In Egypt, the Pharaoh controlled the farmland and the Nile River. Uh, in China, the emperors controlled all the farmland and all the rivers. Um, it's uh, basically uh, Israel, as I mentioned, was the first nation that had private land ownership. And if you can accumulate land, or if you can have land, you can accumulate sheep and cattle and crops, and you can be in a position to lend and not have to borrow uh, the Bible called that being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. You've got capital, you've got land, you save stuff you work for. And so uh, the Roger Baldwin, who started the ACLU, he said, I am for socialism, disarmament, social ownership of property, sole control of those who produce wealth. Communism is the goal. And so it's this idea that they want to take the land away from the people and concentrate it into the hands of the government and ultimately the UN so they can have a global government. And if they can control the, between you and the water, uh, that is um, the ultimate. You can only look three days without water. <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, so I think this is a very serious thing. If you look at a map, the uh, waterway that you're talking about is probably about a, a third in the state of Missouri. I mean, it's like a huge chunk of Missouri that, where the water drains from uh, all these creeks and rivers that they're going to claim that they have a, a watershed that's part of their, uh, you know, control. So this is uh, this is something that uh, if we want to preserve our freedom, we want to preserve control of our land and. Um, We've gotten ourselves to a point where we're now not, we can't trust that Washington, D.C. will come to our rescue and be our ally. Washington, D.C. is part of the problem. Here all this time, we elected people believing that if there were a crisis, they would side with their constituents who put them into office. And they're not behaving in the manner which they behaved while they were campaigning. (laughs) You know, what a difference a day makes. Before the election, they're very attentive, and I'll fight for you, and you're all that matters. And then the day after the election, it's like, I'm here now, too bad. And that that disappoints us. So if you were going to give advice out, and I, I, I know that you, you've been an expert on telling us about the past, but I would like your thoughts. I, I know that some of our listeners like the idea 
of buying land in a secluded area and just going to live, hunker down, like the Glenn Beck proposal is just be prepared and store extra food and all that. I'm not sure that is the best way to handle this because, first of all, they'll find you anywhere you are if they want to find you. We're, we've got technology today that is way beyond where Corey Ten Boom was when she wrote The Hiding Place. You could still hide people in closets. Well, today we have infrared. That's how they found the Boston Marathon bomber is they had helicopters that could detect his body heat. I don't know that we're in a place we can hide. Not when the government's already listening to our cell phone and our email messages. And this seemed unthinkable even a decade ago that they would invade our privacy or even detain U.S. citizens without being charged with a crime. But we shouldn't be so shocked because anybody who understands history knows that nothing is out of the realm of possibility. So what would you do if you were advising our listeners on the appropriate way for people who are constitutional and and care about the direction of our country? Do we stay in, try and get into government, or do we just let the thing go? Well, uh, we definitely try to get into government, and even though we're moving in the wrong direction, we're still several steps ahead of, of communist China, where they don't have a First Amendment and they don't have rights, they don't have you know elections. It's just the government deciding, um, and uh, you know, or, or you know, mafias or gangs in some of the other you know Eastern European type countries. Um, but in, in America, it's um, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, Senator Dirksen of Illinois once said, "When I feel the heat, I see the light." And so politicians are, uh, you know, other than people like yourself, and, and I was talking to um, uh, uh, Rob Schenk, who has the uh, Faith to Action uh, ministry up here in Washington, D.C. I was at his office yesterday, and he, he has a office right across the street from the Supreme Court building, from the back of the Supreme Court building. And he actually fought a battle because he put two big stone Ten Commandment tablets in the front yard of this little, you know, flat that's right across the street. I mean, you could throw a rock across and hit the, you know. But um, anyway, uh, so um, uh, we were talking about um, the the government and um, the power grabs, and he said... He could count count 40 congressmen that he considers really good conservative congressmen. So other than, you know, the small number and people like yourself, most politicians don't know history. They don't know economics. Most of them, the only thing they're really an expert at is getting elected. And they could have come from a sports background or a Hollywood background or any type of background and they don't know constitutional law. They don't know all the history that we talked about. They don't know about power concentrating and, and rights being lost. And some of them think, well, gee, if power concentrates, then uh, you, you, if you're in power, you can, you know, quickly make decisions that can help people. And it's, yeah, you can quickly make decisions to help yourself get reelected, too. And you can use the NSA and IRS and anything that's, you know, within your uh, your reach to uh, to so the selfish motivations there. But um, uh, so if a politician thinks that you will help or hurt their reelection effort, then you got their attention. And so if you get a whole bunch of people and you get in the media and you make a big stink and everything, uh-oh, this person is going to cost me folks the next election time. I better better at least try to move in their direction and help them. Um, but uh, uh, that's the ultimate where we're at. Is, um, we, we still have uh, leaders in there. I mean, the, the presidency and the Supreme Court, um, I don't know where they're at, especially with the Defense of Marriage Act being before the Supreme Court right now. And, um, you know, if they decide to recognize 
gay marriage, uh, I, uh, I've come to the conclusion that, um, the whole gay marriage issue is simply a creative way to declare war on Christianity. That they don't hurry up and line up with the justice and the peace, but they do make a line to the preschool and begin indoctrinating little children. And, uh, Everything that Judeo-Christian morality stands for is now out. So instead of there being a commandment that says, thou shalt not commit adultery and sex is sacred for marriage, now it's, hey, experiment and here's how. And instead of it being God made you special, they teach, well, if there is a God, he's so confused, he's putting men in women's bodies. You know, and you got to do operations to fix it. And, and I mean, there is... Um, uh, a step-by-step where it goes from that to saying, okay, if, if you have a business in Colorado and you make cakes for weddings and you uh, decide that you're not going to bring a cake to a, a, a gay ceremony, then all of a sudden we're going to go after you to shut you out of business and get you arrested and thrown in jail. If you're a photographer and you don't want to take pictures of a gay wedding, then you're going to be, you know, lose your job in the state of Washington. And so they're not the people that pushing for the gay marriage issue, they're not content with coming out of the closet. They want to push you into it. That's good. And uh, my concern is what happens when they finally push the Christian conscience out of the military. And all the good old boys have taken early retirement, and uh, Christian families aren't sending their kids in there like they used to. And the Christians that stay in, they're going to have to learn how to live in the closet and hide their faith. And um, what's going to happen? I mean, do we really think that the same intolerant people, once they get in charge of the military, they're going to somehow be more tolerant than they are now? Or do we think that they're going to be tempted to use that power to push their agenda? And we could see a persecution that, um, you know, it was only in the 1930s that Stalin used the military to kill 20 million Ukrainians in the Soviet Union. In the 1950s, Mao Zedong in China used his military to kill 80 million people. Pol Pot used his military to kill a third of Cambodia, their own government killing them. And, um, you know, Castro in Cuba and Ceausescu in Romania. I mean, the last century, there's more examples of governments that have abandoned the idea that your life is sacred because you're made in the image of a creator uh, to uh, using the power of the government to squelch dissent. And um, America has been the big voice in the world to stand up for individual rights and freedoms. If America falls, there's no other country in the world that can stand up to uh, to the type of totalitarian governments that, that humankind is capable of. You know, that's that's a good admonition for our listeners. And we only have one minute left, but I would like to ask you what your message would be to the pastors because the old expression is that the church used to keep the 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 government in line but who's going to keep the government who's going to keep the church in line so what do we do with them Martin Luther King Jr said the church is the conscience of the state and so the church is supposed to speak out on every political issue and give God's direction. The first republic, they didn't have the word back then, but the first government of people ruling themselves without a king was Israel. And the priest's job was to teach the people the law. But by the end of Judges, you get to the priest Eli, and he has his sons sleeping with women in the tent of the tabernacle, and the prophets go to Eli and say, God is going to have something happened so terrible that people's ears are going to tingle when they hear it. Both your sons will die the same day. You're going to die. The ark's going to be captured, and none of your descendants will reach old age. And they didn't, because Doeg the Edomite killed them. But here, uh, Eli's response was so telling. He simply said, well, whatever the Lord says is good. Whatever happens, happens. It's like, you idiot. You're supposed to repent. You're supposed to... And then it says everyone did what was right in their own eye. Well, why did they do what was right in their own eyes? Because the priests weren't doing their job teaching the law. So if we're going to be a people ruling ourselves without a king, part of the equation is the church teaching the people what is right and what is wrong. But if the church doesn't do its job, people do what's right in their own eyes, and then you're going to have all kinds of sexual immorality and chaos, then the whole 
government of people ruling themselves is going to fall apart and you're going to end up getting a king. Right. Well, thank you for joining us tonight because that was really a great way to summarize it. This has been Bill Federer, and thank you for listening to Homefront tonight. This has been another edition of Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis and hope you enjoyed our program. Please join us next week when we offer another infusion of truth, honesty, and solutions that will grow people bigger and shrink government smaller. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. Give it a heart.